So here we go. We are now in the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 11. Last week, we looked at the healing of a man who for 40 years sat outside the very temple of God, sat out there, and from his birth was unable to walk. And then one encounter with the apostle Peter and John, and all of a sudden, the man not only springs to life, but he's not, a, not just able to stand, he's able to walk and by some accounts jump and be able to praise God. Meaning that his legs were made strong. It, it's not as though he went to Paul for four years of physical therapy. That's the intervening work of God. Now, when something like that happens, there is going to be a disruptive buzz that really makes its way through the thousands and the throngs that had gathered together in the Temple Mount almost like a sonic boom and the waves would make its way through, that would have been the effect of such an unmistakable miracle that clearly disrupted the physical laws and no one could explain it other than we have seen a miracle among us. And Peter uses this opportunity to be able to preach the second sermon after the establishment of his church. We'll look at that. Here in chapter 3, let's pray together as we get ready to do so. God, here we are together and we come together in the name of Jesus to be able to study out the power that is in Christ. By his authority, under his name, by his power, we have opportunity not only to have our eyes flung open, to be able to see the big picture of your wonderful plan that you have for every one of us, but that we also have the certainty of it as well because of Christ, because of his sacrifice, because of his word that makes this all plain. We don't have to guess the path to this wonderful place of deliverance, but that we have it laid out with clarity and specificity. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, here we go in Acts chapter 3. But by the way, this will then set us up for, of course, chapters 4 and 5. It's a little insight from me today for you. But, but what, what it does is it, it then begins this astounding new look at Peter that we have marveled at from the beginning of chapter 1 where he stands up and he corrects the crowds. All of the crowds, all of the experts, all of the most devout of all the land have come together at the, the festival of Shavuot or Pentecost, the festival of, of harvest. They've come together and the crowds begin to deride the fact that the apostles are being able to declare the glories of God in every language. And they begin to make fun of them and, and call them by, by different uh, ideas, like they're, they're a bunch of drunkards. And at that moment, rather than Peter shrinking back as he did, if you recall, when Jesus was arrested, instead of shrinking back, Peter is a changed man. He's seen the risen Jesus. His reason Jesus has ascended to heaven. His guy won. And it's not his guy, it's the guy. The king. The God. Ah, like, oh, I'm on the right side. Nothing can stop us. And so he stands up and he corrects the crowds right away about their mistaken perception of what's going on here and then brings it back to Jesus Amen. and redemption. He does the same thing here in the second sermon. People are wondering by what power, what means this miracle could have occurred. And again, he brings them back to the correction of it, but brings them back to Jesus. 
and his great plan that's there. And he's going to have a call to let them know that all of this was done to bring you ultimate blessing, to bring you the ultimate place where you were always meant to be in your life. And again, we'll read this in just a moment. But before we get there, the, the, the title of the sermon today is The Blessing of Repentance. For some people not familiar with the biblical study of repentance, they may say the blessing of repentance. You mean the agony of repentance? <laughs> the avoidance of repentance? The groaning, the ah, the sackcloth of repentance? But no, I, I really mean this to be what it is. And so will the scriptures say almost exactly the same thing. The blessing of repentance. Now, before, before I, I, I get into this, we're going to, to see through these sermons that Peter lays out a very clear path of how you get to the place that you are always destined to be in life. You know, all of us go through that sort of soul searching. Don't you? I mean, every one of us at different points in our life stepped back and said, what's it all about? What's the meaning of life? What's my reason for being? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? How am I going to become the me that I'm always meant to be? All of that anguish has kind of been categorized by a, a psychologist by the name of Abraham Maslow. And, and Maslow or Maslow had this kind of hierarchy of needs. How many of you had to study this in school at some point or another? Sure. It, it, you know, the, the way I like to think of this is that this anguish, this, this wondering, this aspiring, all of this is really just everyone's attempt to climb Mount Maslow, right? And, and you know, here's, here would be that, that, that rendition of, of what Mount Maslow looks like. You know, there's kind of these base things that you need to get going on in your life before you can kind of move on to something a bit more evolved or actualized is where he ends up. So bottom line is, you can't think, be thinking about getting your college education or who you're going to marry or what you were going to wear to church today if you don't have food and sleep and health or air. Let's throw that in there as well. Yeah. You, you got food, you got your health, then you need safety. You need some sort of security of shelter, clothing, something that's going to help you to live without constant uh, PTSD of sorts th through your life. And then from there, now you can start thinking about connecting into communities and family and love and giving love and receiving love. And then beyond that, now it's, it's time to start to consider esteem, not just self-esteem, but the esteem that you gain from, from other people as well. How is it that you can have more honor than shame? How is it that you can actually be a man or a woman of great honor? And then he kind of wraps it all up with this idea of self-actualization, that you're gonna be the you that you were always meant to be. Somewhere in you, there is this blossoming of the ultimate you, and that's one of the great strivings. By the way, before, and you notice I've got another step on that pyramid there, a new top to the mountain of Mount Maslow, it's because before he died, he actually revised his model. He had done a good bit of searching himself and recognized that if self-actualization is the end or the top of this thing, well then, that is actually just a exer an exercise in self-indulgence. And that you don't really come to the place of delivery. And so he, he actually added the idea of self-transcendence. That you can be greater than yourself, and actually by forgetting yourself, something so much more does come about as you play a part in being able to bring a greater good 
uh, to the common good overall. Right? And who of us hasn't in some different ways thought about this, worked on this? And by the way, the reason that you have is because for many years of my life, I was, I was in marketing with Coca-Cola. And one of the things that we would do is that we would look at this hierarchy of needs and we would spend millions of dollars to exploit that in you. You deserve a break today. Go to McDonald's, right? Uh, have it your way. That way you go to Burger King. You're worth it. All these appeals to different layers uh, among that hierarchy of needs, whether it's the, the fear that comes through shelter and safety or, or whether it is the higher aspirations that occur later on that if you are holding a Diet Coke, you are somebody who has finally arrived. Uh, you are somebody. You have been conditioned by media to, to also aspire to climb Mount Maslow. But for the first century, they wouldn't have used any of these terms. I think they would have had some of these ideas, of course, in mind. These are universal ideas. But, but I think the word that they would have used for that ultimate state of esteem, actualization, and transcendence, right? Once you, once you get to that state, that, that would have been just simply the word that we know in the Bible as blessing. It is the ultimate state of having been favored by the creator himself. That the fabric of the entire universe has smiled upon you. And you now have perfect alignment with the master plan and with all that was always meant to be. And that, that would have been the idea now. Now, however, for me growing up, I wanted that. Who didn't want that? Who didn't want to aspire to great things? I wasted a lot of pen and ink in journals of all of my great aspirations and my vision statements. And I've shared them with you before. And, and it was all a bunch of bluster, of course, of me wanting to really serve myself and pump myself up. But there were two convergent streams that have been vying for the worldview of our community around us. And I don't know which one is, is going to be the dominant one at the end of time. Neither of them is Christian, by the way. Uh, but, but in terms of like our communal worldview that, that seems to dominate academia or the marketplace or the university or even just the neighborhood, just everyday talking. Uh, I, I, one is this idea that there is no God. Everything's just a happy collision of atoms. And there is no ultimate morality or truth. You then do your best with the stimuli and the data that comes your way to do the best with it while you're around and try to just live life for all that you've got and do your best with the time that you've got and make the most of everything that comes your way. Seize the day, all that, that kind of idea there. Now, the, again, that's the one side that says no God, no truth, nothing ultimate. The other side, though, says all is spiritual. All is kind of God. All is God, including me. And if I would just look deeply inside myself, I could learn from that ultimate truth. But it's my truth and maybe not someone else's truth. And yes, I'm happy to study some of the great books of the great thinkers and philosophers. And yes, even the gurus and priests of the world. Uh, yes, I'll look at the religious texts that are out there. And maybe I will kind of pick here, pick there, pick there, and kind of use all of that, as well as what is stirring within my own stole, kind of put it together as some sort of a Frankenstein amalgamation of, of different ideas and let that serve me. 
to be able to guide me into the place of great self-actualization. Now again, two different streams. One is it's all materialism, there is no spirituality. The other is it's all spirituality, and who knows which is which and what, what, what matters more. But, but they actually come together at one place. And they come together at this place. In neither case do you need to obey anyone. And it's why they're both so equally popular. It's why I don't know which one's gonna win. Because they both hold that really attractive quality that you don't have to submit to nobody or no thing, and you don't have to actually obey anything as well, other than the stirrings or the wonders within you, or just simply the prudence of having a better life. Maybe in those cases, of course, you obey, just for the self-serving aspect of it. We're gonna come face to face in this passage with how you get to ultimate blessing, but it's going to absolutely repudiate either the idea that there is no God and it's, it, it, it's all just relative or that it's all sort of spiritual and just kind of make it up as you go along the way. It is an absolute takedown of either of those two views. And so keep that in mind because this is what Peter does to explain the miracle that has occurred before them. Verse 11. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. I'm going to pause here for a second because there's a couple very pregnant terms that he's using that would have landed, not with a thud, but with astonishment to the audience that would have been hearing him. Because they knew their Old Testament rather well. And when you say key words that suddenly bring to mind bigger scripts, big, bigger scriptures, again, know that this is what they're hearing and know that this was Peter's agenda to be able to say these particular words and to have this impact and to make sure that this disruptive idea lands among them as this crowd is trying to make sense of a miracle that no one can deny that has happened right there. And it is interesting that the first thing that he says is, do you, do you think that we did this? Like it could have been by us as if we have the power to do this. I'm not some sort of a magician. I'm not a wizard. I have no abilities in that area. And it's also not by my own piety or godliness that I did this. It's not because I'm so devout that I'm, I'm suddenly able to wield all of this power. All of this came about by one thing only. The man you crucified brought all this about. The one who came to deliver you and love you that you butchered, it's coming about because of him. You know, the one that I just told you was both Lord and Messiah. This is all coming about by him. And when he says the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers in verse 13, he is making sure that they understand that what I'm talking about, Peter is talking about, is a continuity with all of this that goes all the way back to Genesis 12, all the way back, not only to the fall, Genesis three and four. But, but now is being brought home fully. God's plan of grieving over man's fall was going to be reversed. It was going to be reversed in such a way that blessing would be showered upon mankind. 
And they would come to the place where they were always meant to be. An intimacy with their creator. To know the harmony of a life that was always meant to be lived in alignment with God himself. Right? And, and, and that was the blessing to Abraham. Is that you will be blessed and you will become a blessing to all nations. Abraham was a blessing bearer, a vessel of that. He passed it on to Isaac. He passed it on to Jacob, passed it on through Israel. Ultimately, it would be brought to bear, as Peter will explain, ultimately expressed in the fulfillment of all of that through Jesus. And the stuff that is astounding you right now, it's helping you to know that this is really going down. And so the, the crowd is realizing that. And then one other thing he says is that, that you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. When he says you disowned the holy and righteous one, that phrase, the righteous one, would have echoed the, a very strong idea from Isaiah. And I know I'm doing lots of references here. Sorry about that. But Isaiah 53, 11 talks about the righteous one who will suffer for his people. And that righteous one in Isaiah is the Messiah. That righteous one is Jesus. Peter's bringing all these things together right now so that they can recognize what happened to this man that all of you are abuzz about. You're only going to understand it if you understand that God's plan is what we're trying to get across right now. And so, yes, the beginning of what Peter says is, let me explain what happened. But then after having explained it, he's going to shift gears and be able to say, now this is what is being called to you. If you get this, this is, this is what it is that you need to consider. So uh, also he, he calls Jesus a servant. The only place where the idea of servant is used so strongly is also in Isaiah 52 and 53. When you get a chance, go back and read Isaiah 52 verse 13 through 53, 13. And you'll know what was in their mind. And then it would actually land the punch that would have had happening there on the temple courts. So he goes on to say, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. The word author could either mean the, the champion, the initiator, the giver, the creator of life. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus's name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. The words that are used for strong and completely healed is the idea of someone that is in the top of their health, in the best of their shape. It's not as though, oh, suddenly he can walk and he's kind of wobbling around as he's making his way through the temple courts. This guy, as we've already seen, is jumping and running and leaping and praising. He is an object lesson as he's bouncing around like Tigger on the temple mount. And now we've got to somehow reconcile how something like this could happen right here in our midst. And Peter's like, I'm going to do some splaining. And here's how you're going to understand how all this went down. And so then he says, verse 17, here comes the kind of the sermon part of this. Now, fellow Israelites, it's, it's kind of a marker in rhetoric in the original text that there's kind of a moment here where Peter is like, okay, you got all that? You understand what I just said is prelude. Here comes the sermon. Now, 
Fellow Israelites, here he comes. I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Again, Isaiah 53 marks that out. And then look at what he says. Here comes the command. Repent then and turn to God. In the, in the original language, there is a, a, a marker word right there. It's, it's like a therefore or based on all of this. Given all of this, now here's the conclusion. So therefore, with all of this in mind, and Tigger bouncing around behind me, hopefully he doesn't distract you from my sermon. Therefore, repent. Turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that may he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time he comes from God, for God to restore everything. This is messianic language. As he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your people. You must listen to everything he tells you. That flies in the face of, well, all is spirituality. Let me just kind of pick and choose what serves me best. Let me see what makes me sound cool when I'm at the coffee shop and I'm espousing my philosophy to others who want to pontificate about Hinduism versus Shintoism versus Confucianism. Now that, you know what? All bets are off. If you want to make sense of the clear miracle, the clear sign that God is making here, you need to listen to everything that Jesus tells you. And if I didn't make the point hard enough, it's what Peter is saying. And anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. Now, hear this, what they heard. Everything that you know in your Bible, in the Hebrew scriptures, everything from Genesis to, to Malachi, everything that was written down, and for them it's from Genesis to 2 Chronicles, because that's the way the Hebrew Bible was organized. But, but everything that was written, it's all pointing to Jesus. And it's all pointing to this moment where Jesus is made manifest and applied and has an effect on the people that he wants to redeem. All of it is coming to this point in time. And you are heirs, verse 25, of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. Now, we hear the word blessed and it's very easy to discount it, isn't it? Right. I mean, if, if you want to say that someone has really been been screwing up lately, you say this phrase, oh, bless his soul. <laughs> that boy, that boy couldn't find his way out of a paper bag. Bless his soul. It's it's not a word to be trifled with. It is God's attempt to convey Everything your soul has yearned for, everything that you were made for, all that your DNA, DNA double helix strand is actually pointing towards, 
It is all towards this. You have always been destined for blessing, the blessing from God. This blessing is the blessing that had continuity from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as Abraham was told by God, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, again, Isaiah 53 language again. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you. But how is he going to bless you? By turning each of you from your wicked ways. And so the application of healed Tigger bouncing around the temple courts, the application of an astounding miracle, the application of Jesus' power and name being the force behind all of this, the application behind it all is the response to the gospel. It's the response to the gospel again and again. When John the Baptist comes to open up the silence between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant... When he opens up the silence, the very first words recorded by the Holy Spirit that are publicly preached in the New Testament are in Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2. And the very first word that is captured as preparation for and response to the gospel is repent. John says, repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God is coming upon us. After Jesus' travail and temptation and victory in the desert, after his baptism and after the beginning of his public ministry, the very first publicly preached words by Jesus that are again captured by the Holy Spirit, captured for all of us, the preparation and the response to his good news and the kingdom that he is ushering in, what is the very first word that Jesus chooses? To be able to be the word that, that he lays out for all people. The very first word is in Matthew 4.17. What is that word? Repent. Repent. It's the same words as John. Repent because the kingdom of heaven is upon us now. When Peter preaches his first sermon in Acts chapter 2. And the people are like, ah, what should we do? What should we do now that we understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? What's the very first word that Peter says to them for them to respond? Repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus comes back in the book of Revelation to give messages to the churches that have gone astray. What is the commonality of the command that he gives to each of those churches? Repent. Repent and love the way you loved at first. Repent. And I, and I will come in and be with you. Repentance is the response to the gospel. Repentance is the means by which we appreciate the kingdom of God. Repentance in the Greek is this word, metanoia. And I know we've studied this here quite a bit, but metanoia is rather revolutionary when we recognize the depth of what this word means. If you were to try to look at the Old Testament Greek of metanoia, like that, that word is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, but it rarely appears. And the only time that it actually appears 
is actually used with God. Of how God himself is one that, that actually exercises this transformation of worldview understanding. Now, the word has at its root, noia. And we've got another English word that ends in noia. Can anybody think of another English word that ends in noia? But noia, noia is at the heart of paranoia. Why? Because noia means your, your mindset or your worldview or how you make sense of everything that's going on. All the stimuli that you're trying to process. It is all processed through this concept of noia. Or, you know, in different languages, words are, are declined and conjugated. Well, noia is also the word noose or nous, right? And I think even in London, they, they use that word. It's like, you know, that, that, that guy's got a pretty good nous. He's got, a, he's got a good mind to be able to process all the stuff that's going on. As a matter of fact, one of the most influential philosophical journals is the journal entitled Nous. Why? Because it's all about this idea of your worldview or your ability to process. Now, para, para means kind of off to the side. Like we have words like paramour. Uh, amour is, is love. Paramour is not really your wife, but it's you know, something you got on the side. But it, but it has in the idea, sometimes para has in the idea of missing, missing. Right? And I, I don't want to focus on that too much, but when you have a worldview that is off like that, not, not quite hitting the mark, but missing, as, as paranoia would be, well, you've got a worldview that causes you to process things in an irregular way. However, metanoia, meta, we have words like metamorphosis, right? And it's, it's the idea of, of after, or, or, which implies change, or really transformational. And so a metanoia is an absolutely transformed worldview. It is new eyes by which you see the world, scales falling from your eyes. It's how Paul's, Saul's repentance was described. It's as though now I see through a completely different lens because I've been brought to this transformational perspective, a paradigm shift by which I make sense of everything completely differently. And, and it's through that that you can perceive the kingdom of God. It's through that you make sense of the sovereignty of Jesus and the work of Christ and how it is meant to be applied in your life. But interestingly... Somehow over time, rather than having this grand, daring, beautiful phenomenon of metanoia excite us when we read it, we read repentance and we're like, oh yeah, 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 that's true. Why? Why is that? Because as early as 150 AD and then crystallized in 400 AD, when the Latin language began to be more popular than the Greek language, the Bible is translated and they translated the word metanoia as penitentia. We don't know exactly why, but we know the arguments that people had, even then, as they wrote back and forth to one another, basically saying, what are you doing putting penitentia in Jesus' mouth here when he said metanoia? Penitentia is the idea of just feeling sorry, feeling bad. It's, it's almost like, all right, if we punish you enough, you'll change, is the idea of penitentiary, right? Or penitentia. It grew into the sacrament of penance. The idea that if you give enough money, then you're going to be in a better state with God. All right? If, you do, if you've done the crime, you better do the time and give us some money on top of that. Uh, I mean, that's what, it, that's what it kind of evolved into, unfortunately. 
but it became the only way that anybody ever thought of metanoia. Rather than this beautiful phenomenon of eye-opening, freedom-providing perspective change that allows us to grab life the way that it was always meant to be grabbed and to live it with beauty and daring and alignment with the will of God. So, when Jesus preaches that, when John the Baptist preaches that, and even now here when Peter preaches that again and again in sermons 1 and 2 in the book of Acts, and it's the response to it, that's what he's saying. It's like, don't get stuck in old thinking. Don't be an old dog that can't learn new tricks. This is not feeling bad enough about your sins so that you'll change. This is not penitentia. This is not you've done the crime, do the time. This is not associative conditioning that if you flog yourself enough, maybe you'll hate the behavior and extinguish it. Or, or with your dog, you hit him hard enough on the snout after he you know, rustled up the garbage in the kitchen that maybe he'll never do it again. No, it's none of that. It's not that sort of just behaviorism. This is something so much more grand, so much more supernatural. This is courtesy of our creator. That he brings all of this together so that you result in eye-opening phenomenon that sends you on a brand new course of life where you're able to live, live fully of who you're always meant to be. But he does say here that the way that this is brought about is through Jesus. So listen to him. Right? It says here, he will raise up a prophet from you. Listen to everything he tells you. You know, Jesus doesn't just bring you the word. He is the word. Jesus doesn't just bring you the truth. He is the truth. Amen. He doesn't show you the way to life. He is life. It all culminates in him. Everything the prophets ever wrote about, it's all in him. And now he is being made clear to the crowds that are there. And I hope to us as well. For us, we're like, yeah, but is that really the path to ultimate fulfillment? Is that really the path? Because I think, I like that idea that that guy was saying earlier. I want to pick and choose from all of the different philosophies under the sun. I want to sound cool and have aspects of different religions as well. Kind of put it all together. That way I'm kind of relatable. And, and besides all that, I aspire to be a hipster. And that kind of goes with the territory. It doesn't matter that that's what you want. It doesn't matter that that's what society applauds. As I said, society's going to reinforce one of those two streams of philosophy or worldview. But either of them is going to leave you wanting. Why? Because all of us have tried them and realized how they've left us wanting. I know how it left me wanting. But now, when we actually surrender over to the idea that there is truth, that there is clarity, that there is absolutes, that there is a God, and that there is a plan, and that He does intercede, and that He does want you to be blessed, but yet you might think, well, I don't know. I get that, and maybe I can appreciate that, and maybe I'm willing to go ahead and try that, but I'm such a mess. I don't know if I could ever have that repentance, that metanoia that you speak of. Well, let me encourage you with what we're seeing even in this passage. These are the things that Peter says about the crowd here. You're the ones who handed over Jesus. That's a pretty big deal. Think of the, the stain on your soul if you knew you were the one who handed over Jesus. Also in verse 13, you're worse than Pilate. Pilate was getting ready to release him, but you wouldn't let him. You're worse than that, that despot tyrant that we all hate. Verse 14, you traded out the Holy One and the Righteous One that we've all been looking forward to for a murderer. That's who you chose. 
in your pride. Verse 15, you killed the very author of life. Verse 17, oh, and on top of all of that, you're, you're absolutely ignorant. And by the way, if that's not enough, you don't even understand the Bible. You denied the very privilege that was meant to be yours, to be led by the Messiah and to be blessed underneath him. Oh, and, and finally, one last thing, you're wicked through and through, you're wicked. If this crowd, with in some cases, literal blood on their hands for Jesus, if this crowd can repent, I think you can. God is grabbing you at just the right time. And he's going to show you the path. And that path is through Jesus, listening to everything that he says. Now that's a really big deal, by the way. And to say that, listen to everything that he tells you. That's almost like a prerequisite, I believe, for repentance. When I entered into the idea that, you know what, I get that I am far afield from where I need to be in the great cosmic order of things, and I, I get a sense that the Bible is going to be the thing that helps me, but all my life I got a sense that the Bible was the thing that helped me. But I picked and chose what I wanted from the Bible. And if there was something that didn't serve me well, well then, let's toss that out. And there are, there are very difficult things. The, the Bible confronts us with our pride. Whoa, that's no fun. If you know anybody here, maybe you're that person here, who people don't like confronting you with your pride, well, then probably you've never really allowed the Bible to confront you with your pride. But it also confronts my materialism and yours. Why is it that I'm not generous towards God? Why is it that I don't recognize that all that I have is from God? And that I'm not overjoyed with the perspective of metanoia to give him my first fruits and to see the way that these temporary possessions could be used for something so much greater. Also, why is it that I don't recognize the sanctity of marriage, right? But the Bible will do that. The Bible opens no door for divorce the way that Christians run after divorce today. It's a scandal, really. It's a scandal in, in Christianity. Or how about racism? Why, why is it that most of the churches that you could have gone to visit today are either all white, all black, or all Asian? Now why? Because they've never allowed the Bible to inform them of what it looks like to really love all people. That didn't happen by accident in all those places. There was a willingness, there was a design, but, but also there was never a call to repentance to really love all people. How about purity? To be delivered from that, whoa. That's beautiful and massive though for all of the, but guess what? When you hold to all that Jesus says, that will be the end result. But if you open the door even a little bit, I'm gonna be the one who sits in judgment about what I hold to from Jesus. I'm going to be the final arbiter of truth. Oh my goodness. The minute that you allow that door to even open up a crack, all of the power of Jesus manifested in the Bible is, is absolutely vacated by our arrogance. But my goodness, when we really do surrender, what is the end result? We climb the pyramid. We climb the pyramid to the place that God has always wanted for us. We climb it to this place. Why not? Why not be blessed? Why not be part of God's ultimate plan? Why not know the ultimate security? Why not know the ultimate beauty? Why not know the ultimate enthralling connection and intimacy with God? Why not know the rock solid airtight peace that will wash over your soul? Why not know the hope 
of eternity. Why not have all of that? Is the path up the mountain that terrible for you? All it requires is a surrender. All it requires is to really allow the word of God to be the guide for every one of us. Repentance is this great blessing. The eye-opening experience of finally seeing clearly is the blessing. Celebrating and understanding the kingdom of God and the king is the blessing. That suddenly informs your life and puts a jolt in your step. It's, it's not like, well, maybe if you can feel bad enough, you'll get the blessing. That's not the path that's here. Don't let religious tradition corrupt the beauty of what God is trying to offer here. And God forbid, don't let religious pride get in the way of like, oh, are you saying that I, I still need to understand this? Well, yeah, you know what? If, you're, if your life isn't one where you're living absolutely fully with Jesus as Lord, proclaiming his kingdom and making that great difference, then yes, I am. But what's so bad about you getting there? Well, it means that maybe I was wrong. When I, so what? All God is going to do is refine you to even greater joy. Why not let the word of God fully inform you on the way that this is to go?